Good morning, everyone. Take out your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation. There you go. If you're using one of the Bibles uh, provided that you might have picked up at the door and you came in, you can find Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 16, beginning in verse 7 today. It is on page 498 if you're using one of the Bibles uh, provided. I want to begin this morning by uh, reading a, a newspaper article, and it was entitled, Getting What They Deserve. And uh, it was about some criminals that uh, had their crimes kind of take a turn that they probably didn't expect. Let me read a couple of them to you. A man walked into a Louisiana Circle K, put a $20 bill on the counter, and asked for change. When the clerk opened the cash drawer, the man pulled a gun and asked for all the cash in the register, which the clerk promptly provided. The man took the cash from the clerk and fled, leaving the $20 bill on the counter. The total amount of cash he got from the register, $15. And then here was the question, if someone points a gun at you and gives you money, is a crime really committed? (laughs) Interesting question. Here's another one. Seems an Arkansas guy wanted some beer pretty badly. He decided he'd throw a cinder block through a liquor store window, grab some booze, and run. So he lifted the cinder block and heaved it over his head at the window. The cinder block bounced back and hit the would-be thief on the head, knocking him unconscious. The liquor store window was made of plexiglass. The whole event was caught on videotape. And won last year's America's Funniest Home Videos, I'm sure. And then here's my favorite one of all. Okay, I get this one. When a man attempted to siphon gasoline from a motorhome parked on a Seattle street by sucking on a hose, he got much more than he bargained for. Police arrived at the scene to find a very sick man curled up next to a motorhome. A, a police spokesman said that the man attempted to try tried to steal gasoline, but he plugged his siphon hose into the motorhome sewage tank by mistake. <laughs> Getting what they deserve. The owner of the vehicle declined to press charges saying it was the best laugh he had ever had. (laughs) Well, as we think about people getting what they deserve, in chapter 16, as we continue our study in Revelation, John is describing for us a group of people during the tribulation that are going to get what they deserve because they have rejected Jesus Christ and they have accepted the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. That's the context of what we're looking at here. Uh, This is part of our series, The Return of the King, A Journey Through Revelation. We started in chapter 1, verse 1. We've been working our way all the way through. And John is describing here the final last judgments of God that occur right at the end of the seven years of tribulation. We're, We're right up at the last judgments and then the return of Christ he comes back at his second coming and for our guests that are here today before you think you know we're crazy and we're just all about hellfire and brimstone and judgments I want to remind all of us what we're looking at here in Revelation chapter 16 these final judgments of God are after 15 chapters where we have seen God extend his mercy his grace his love And his patience to mankind, even during the seven years of tribulation, giving them opportunity after opportunity to still be saved and have eternal life. But now, God's patience has ran out. And and we're looking at a group of people that are getting what they deserve because they have said no to God. They have slapped his hand out of their life. And they've decided to take the mark of the beast and the Antichrist. But, But this is all coming after God has been incredibly merciful merciful, gracious, and patient with these people. If you know that to be true, church, that have been in this study, say yes. 
And so this is not God picking on people and being a bully and you know, just trying to show you know, how rough he can be. This is, this is after a, a long period of patience of God. Uh, I titled this last week, The Beginning of the End, and we're looking at the second part of this this week in chapter 15 and 16. And this is the, called The Beginning of the End because these are the final judgments of God right at the end of the tribulation period. We started last week in chapter 15, verse 1. Let me just read that again to get our context here of chapter 15 and 16, John said, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is what, church? It's complete, it says here in verse 1. This is the completion of God's judgment, the beginning of the end. Now we ended last week in chapter 16, verse 6, and we're going to pick it up today in verse 7, but to just uh, get the context together, let's read verse 6 again. And this was after the first three bold judgments took place. We'll look at the final four today. Verse 6, John hears this angel say, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due, or their just reward, or what they deserve. That is the angel's statement about these people the judgments are coming on, the Antichrist and all those who've taken the mark of the beast and have chosen to follow him instead of, instead of Jesus Christ. And they have shed the blood of saints. They, they've killed the believers. There are going to be some people who do accept Christ during the tribulation period and choose to follow Christ, and many of them will be killed for their faith. And so now God's giving them blood in the waters and saying that's what they deserve. Verse 7, we hear another voice saying basically the same thing, that this is what they deserve. It says, John says, And I heard another from the altar now, this voice coming, saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. This voice here, I believe, is probably the voice of many of the martyrs that we saw back in chapter 6. Remember, they were under the altar. They had been killed for their faith, for accepting Christ during the tribulation. And they cried out to God when they got to heaven and said, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And now God is avenging their blood with these final judgments. And they're saying, this is righteous. This is a righteous judgment. It's right. Um, it's true. They're reminding us again that God is not being a bully. He's not being unfair. But he has given them plenty of opportunities. But God's patience has finally ran out. But I want to remind you of what we ended with last week. That apart from our personal faith in Jesus Christ and accepting him as our Lord and Savior, judgment is what we all deserve. Because of our sins. That's what the Bible tells us. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the great news is, is when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we accept the fact that he took our judgment on the cross for us so we would not have to face it. Are you thankful for that this morning? Say amen. And I want to remind you though that this is what would be on all of us apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's interesting in the context here of what we're seeing happening on earth Everyone at this point has either accepted Jesus Christ or they've accepted the Antichrist, taken the mark of the beast, and they're following him. Everyone has made their choice. And what we see here, it appears that those who reject God and take the mark of the beast get what they deserve, which is judgment. But it contrasts with that with those who follow Jesus and reject the mark of the beast get what they don't deserve, which is salvation, which is the same for all of us.
Now, I want to tell you before we, we finish this off, chapter 16 today, I want to let you know kind of where we're headed. We're going to set uh, Revelation aside for a few weeks. Um, next Sunday is Easter. We're not going to talk about judgment. We're going to talk about victory. We're going to talk about our risen Lord and Savior. It's going to be one of the most incredible, moving, powerful services you have ever been in here at the Orchard Church. You do not want to miss it uh, next Sunday. So we'll set Revelation aside for that. We always have a lot of guests that come on Easter Sunday, and we try to really encourage them to come back the next few weeks and find out more about our church and we thought it would be difficult to encourage them to just jump into the middle of revelation when they haven't been here for this study and so we're going to do something very practical something different than we've ever done at our church for about three weeks after easter uh, you're gonna have to come next sunday to hear about that and what we're doing it is really going to be timely in the day and the times that we live in it's going to really um, meet people's needs and where they're at so we'll do that for a few weeks we'll take a break from revelation get a little breather and then we'll come back to chapter 17 um, you know at the end of May and we'll do that going into summer so we'll probably take us about eight to ten weeks to finish off the book of Revelation but it's good to have a break every once in a while and so that's what we'll be doing want to let you know about that uh, for the next few weeks so we started last week looking at three observations of John in chapter 15 and 16 as he describes these final judgments by way of review let me give them to you you have them in your notes the first observation of John in, in Revelation 15 verse verse 1 through 4 is John hears the music of heaven as he sees those that give their lives for Christ during the tribulation safely arrive in heaven and there's a celebration worship service that takes place and he hears them singing and praising and worshiping the same way we're all going to arrive in heaven that have put our faith and trust in Christ. The second observation of John he sees in verse 5 through 8 of chapter 15 is the ministers of God. They're the angels as seven angels are given the responsibility of ministering the bowls of judgment. Seven angels are given seven bowls and they are going to pour those bowls out one at a time, God's final judgment as ministers of God. And then the third observation of John we saw was once these bowls begin to be poured out, there's mayhem that takes place on the earth with these final judgments. We looked at the first three in verse one through six last week and I'll remind you of those in just a moment. But, but let me just stop and say this for a second. As I studied this the last couple of weeks, I believe it is very clear that those that follow the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast, those are the ones these bowls of judgment will be poured out upon and will be affected by them. But those that follow Jesus Christ, and some of them will not be martyred. Some of them will escape the Antichrist, and they'll go to places like Petra, and they'll be hiding, and they'll actually live through these things, and then when Christ comes at his second coming, we'll see this a little later in Revelation, they'll go right into the millennium with us who come back with Christ. And for those people, I believe it's clear, they will be covered by God's protection. And they will not be affected by any of these judgments. It will only be on those that take the mark of the beast, not on the people of God. Because God always protects those who belong to him. Amen? And so I want to remind you of that. These judgments are for those who take the mark of the beast and follow the Antichrist and worship him during the tribulation. The first bold judgment, you have this in your notes, letter A. We saw when it was poured out by the angel, loathsome sores came upon those who had taken the mark of the beast. The second bold judgment, we saw the sea was turned to blood. 71% of the earth is water, and it will be turned to blood. The third bold judgment is poured out, we saw last week, and the fresh water turns to blood. So there's no fresh water to drink. Those who've rejected Jesus, the one who he said offers us fountains of living water, 
now have no fresh water to drink, those that have followed the Antichrist. So today we pick it up in verse 8 with the fourth bowl judgment as we see these final judgments come to a close. Verse 8 and 9 of chapter 16. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. I hope they have some good SPF when this happens. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, these judgments, and they did not repent and give him glory. And so as the fourth bowl judgment is poured out, the people, the men, and the women that have taken the mark of the beast, it says they're scorched with the sun, and yet they continue to blaspheme God. You know, there's a lot of talk today and debate today about global warming. You know, and some absolutely say there's global warming and they can prove it, and others say, no, it's just a big joke. You know, it's really not true. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I'll let other people debate about that. That's not the debate today, but I'll say this. I see global warming right here in Revelation chapter 16. There is going to be global warming. We have scriptural evidence for it. But you know what we maybe should be more concerned with than global warming is global judgment. We know for a fact that's going to take place. We read about it right here in the scriptures. And that global judgment is going to include global warming. As the scriptures say here that people that take the mark of the beast will be scorched by the heat of the sun. Now different scholars have debated and, and, and theorized about how God will cause this to take place. And some have thought that maybe God will allow the sun to explode into what we would call a supernova. When stars explode, they create supernovas and great heat goes out of them. Or it could be that just God does some kind of supernatural judgment that just affects those with the mark of the beast. We, you know, we don't know for sure. I tend to lean to believe that God's just going to do this in some supernatural way because if the sun explodes into some supernova, it's probably going to affect everyone on the earth, yet you see God's people being protected. I even read one uh, commentator, a couple of different ones that, that came up with this theory. We don't know for sure. It's just an opinion and a theory, but it is very interesting to think about because the scripture keeps telling us here that these judgments will only affect those who have taken the mark of the beast, the number 666. We don't know exactly how Antichrist is going to um, cause people to take this or, or what that mark's going to look like. Some have thought it's going to be some kind of tattoo or barcode or a, a chip implant or whatever. We don't know, but he's going to ask the whole world to, to do this or be killed. They can't buy, sell, or live without it. And it's probably going to come on the scene so quickly, they're, they're not going to have time to do medical tests and things like that on it. And it's possible, we don't know, that maybe those who've taken the mark of the beast are going to have some kind of allergic reaction and that's going to cause the sores on their body that we saw when the first plague is poured out that's only going to affect them. And then now it says they're going to be scorched by the sun and maybe this is another kind of allergic effect to the mark because remember where the mark is to be taken? On the forehead or the back of the right hand. Two areas of our skin that are exposed all the time when we go out into the, to the sun unless you wear a hat and a gloves. And so we don't know for sure but I thought that was rather interesting that that, that is a possibility to set them apart from those who have accepted Christ and not taken the mark. But as we look at these judgments as horrific as they are and alarming, the most alarming thing that we're seeing here happen is not the judgments but it's the reaction of those who are being judged. Did you see this in verse 9? It says that, that these judgments are coming, and they know at this point where they're coming from. They know it's the God of the universe. It's not, they can't just say, well, this is just naturally happening. They know who it's coming from, and they know that the God who has power over these plagues, and they do not repent. And not only do they not repent and turn, but they blaspheme God. 
And they ridicule God, and they mock God, and they spit in God's face, and they curse at him. And we're going to see this is the first of three times that this happens and what God does about it here in the end. It says, one writer said, if a man rejects the kindness and love of God, then what makes us think that the judgment of God will change his heart either? And it doesn't. Let's look at the fifth bowl judgment. The fifth bowl is poured out. And what happens is darkness and pain. Verse 10 and 11. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom, which is worldwide at this time, has become full of what church? Darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blaspheme, here's the second time, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but how many of y'all remember when Monday Night Football started? I think it started in 1970, Monday Night Football. And uh, there was a commentator on Monday Night Football uh, that was, was one of the first ones. He was very well known. Uh, he used to play for America's team, the greatest football team ever, the Dallas Cowboys. And I just had to throw that in there. I'm sorry. And uh, his name was Don Meredith. Matter of fact, he passed away just this past year. And Don Meredith made famous during the broadcast on Monday Night Football whenever it would be toward the end of the game and it was obvious which team was going to win or lose, he would sing a song called Turn Out the Lights. The party's over. And he was famous for that. And that's the way he would, clo you know, he would close out Monday Night Football. Whenever he knew that which team was going to win or lose, he would sing that song, Turn Out the Lights, The Party's Over. Well, during the fifth bowl judgment, God himself is going to turn out the lights. And the party is going to be over for the Antichrist and his followers. And it's going to be dark all over the earth, complete darkness. I don't know many, how many of you guys have ever been to a place called Carlsbad Caverns. It's in New Mexico. And one of the things that they, they do in Carlsbad Caverns, they take you down in this elevator, you know, I mean, it's like a mile or more underneath the earth. And they get you down to the bottom and they'll tell you like, grab hold of a friend, you know, or, or your wife or, you know, somebody that you, you came with, hold on to their hand for a second, you know, make sure you grab your, your wife's hand, not somebody else's wife. You know, grab their hand and then they turn out the lights. And I mean, it is pitch black. I mean, there is not a, a, an ounce of light anywhere. And I mean, it is so dark. It is so thick, you can feel it. I mean, you could feel the darkness, and it's a real eerie feeling. I mean, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. And I believe that's what's going to happen here with this fifth bowl judgment when it's poured out. The darkness at this point is going to be poured out on the land. But notice, it's, it's worse than that. It's not just dark, but it says that it's accompanied with pain. So much pain, verse 11 says, that, that you know, they gnaw um, on, on their tongues in pain because of the darkness and pain. You know, maybe this is one way God is going to shut them up from blaspheming him. It's an interesting thought. He's like, you want to keep blaspheming me? He puts them in so much pain, they're gnawing on their tongues, and maybe they don't blaspheme for a little while. But verse 10, uh, there's some debate, you know, with scholars that is this darkness localized or is it worldwide? Because it says it's on the throne of the beast, the Antichrist, but it also says it covers his kingdom. And at this point, remember in our study that the Antichrist is trying to rule the entire world and his, the whole world is his kingdom at this point. So I believe it's probably going to affect uh, the whole world. But there's some, some question about that. But here's something really interesting that I want to point out to you guys. And if you, if you put this together, this is really interesting. As I've studied this out, we, we see that God's wrath and judgment is being poured out upon 
the beast, the antichrist, the false prophet, the dragon, Satan himself, all those who've taken the mark of the beast. And we see the descriptions of these, this judgment. It says that people are thirsty. They're being scorched by the sun. There's complete darkness on the earth. There's pain. There's sores. And as we're going to see in just a moment, there's a great earthquake that takes place. All of this in conjunction with the wrath and judgment of God. Now think back with me. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was on that cross, 2,000 years ago this week, and he was taking the wrath of his Father upon himself, the judgment of God, to pay for our sins so we don't have to. And you know what the Bible tells us? And this just gives me goosebumps talking about it. Jesus on the cross was there. He was, we, many believe, because of the way the Romans crucified, he was naked in the sun, being scorched by the sun, dehydrated, blood loss, water loss in his body from the beatings and the scourgings, and he was dehydrated. And what did he say on the cross? I thirst. But it goes further than that. The Bible tells us in the Gospels from 12 to 3 in the afternoon, God the Father had to turn his back for the first time in all eternity on his own son because he couldn't look upon sin that he had taken upon himself. And you know what the Bible says? That the skies grew black and the earth became dark during that time. We know about the pains and the sores that Jesus had in his body from the beatings from the Romans and the scourgings. And then the Bible also tells us at the very end that a great earthquake took place while he was on the cross. Isn't that interesting? The very same things that happened to Jesus on the cross and on the earth happened during the tribulation, but they happened to those who reject Jesus. You see, those who reject Jesus' sacrifice for their sins, who took their judgment on the cross, will face God's judgment themselves. I find that fascinating how those two things work together, and it's not a coincidence. Let me remind you of what John said in John 3, 18. We know that Jesus throughout the scriptures is described as the light of the world. And when he left, he said to Christians, we're now the light of the world till the light of the world comes back. And listen to what he said, John 3, 18. He who believes in him and Jesus is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light, Jesus has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. You see, those who love darkness during the tribulation and choose to follow the Antichrist and reject Jesus, the light, get what they desire. They get darkness. That's what they get. And it's something else that I want to point out here that is very sobering but is a reality and is truth according to the scriptures. And I, I don't say this with any sense of satisfaction or joy whatsoever, but it's important that we, we recognize this. Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 described the realities of hell. And you know how he described it? He said it would be a place of darkness, weeping, wailing, and gnashing. But it's not gonna be temporary like what we see here. It's going to be eternal. And I believe what we're seeing here is just a, a preview of what hell is gonna be like forever. And thank God he, he sent Jesus to save us from that so we could have a relationship with him and step into the light. Let's look at the sixth bowl judgment, letter F. The sixth bowl judgment, we see the great Euphrates River is dried up. Verse 12 through 14, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl. We've seen five, now here's the sixth. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. 
And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. They're not frogs, but they're like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. There's that unholy trinity we studied about back in Revelation 12 and 13. Remember the unholy trinity? Uh, Satan is the dragon, the antichrist is the beast, and the false prophet. Here we see him again. They are the spirits, these frog-like spirits are the spirits of demons performing signs and miracles which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. The sixth bowl judgment causes the great river Euphrates to dry up, to prepare the armies from the east to cross into Israel for what they think is going to be a battle. But as you're going to see in a moment, it's really not a battle. The river Euphrates is has always been a natural boundary between the nation of Israel and Asia to the east. And I've got this uh, map up here. I want you to see this. Right here is the little country of Israel. And then you have Jordan, Saudi Arabia. And then all of this, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. And to the east is the Orient. And you can see this black line is the great river Euphrates. It starts on top of Mount Ararat. Um, the snow-capped mountains up there, I think it, it reaches to like 17,000, 18,000 feet. It's in modern-day Turkey, and it, as it melts, it flows in the Great River Euphrates all the way down here to the Persian Gulf. And it, but it creates, as you can see, this, this just natural barrier between Israel and the countries here uh, to the east of it. It's 1,800 miles long. It's 300 to 1,200 feet wide with an average depth of about 30 feet. If you're going to get an army, this massive army that the Bible describes here, to come from the east and invade Israel, that has to be dried up. That has to be removed. So how is God going to do this? Well, there have been some theories how God might do this. It's interesting that about 20-some years ago, there was the Ataturk Dam that was constructed. It's right here, the Ataturk Dam in modern-day Turkey at the headwaters of the Great River Euphrates, and then, then it continues from here. They tell us that if they were to turn off, you know, close this dam from the headwaters, they could stop the flow of the Great River Euphrates for eight months. Interesting. Flip of a switch, it could be done. Or again, God could just supernaturally do it. He doesn't need a dam. He might use that, but you know what? God can just simply say stop, and it'll stop. Do you all remember the Red Sea crossing? He just parted the waters, and the children of Israel and Pharaoh and his armies crossed, no problem. I think what's important is the reason why God will dry up the Euphrates is found right here in verse 12. It's so that the kings or the armies, if you can, from the east will be enticed to cross it and invade Israel. Now they think they're doing this to invade Israel and to try to fight and defeat God, but really this is all just part of God's plan. It's a setup, as you're going to see in just a moment, and God entices them by drying it up, just like he did the Red Sea when he parted it so the children of Israel could cross on dry land, but it also enticed Pharaoh and his armies to cross, except what they didn't realize was once they got in there, God shut the waters. And it was kind of a, a setup, if you will. Same thing is going to take place again. Now, notice it says that it's going to entice the kings from the east. Who are these kings from the east? Well, this can also be translated in your Bible, kings of the rising sun. Have you ever heard of the countries of the rising sun? It's talking about the oriental countries to the east, uh, countries like China and Japan and Pakistan and India. And so it seems that they're going to begin to get these armies together. But notice in verse 14, it says, but the whole world's going to gather with them. 
All the armies of the world are going to follow the Antichrist and his leadership. They're going to gather together. They're going to come from the east to the west to attack Israel, crossing the great river Euphrates. In 1965, China alone, just one of those countries from the Orient, boasted of a 200 million man army. And this is going to be joined by the rest of the world. But here's the question. What is the motive for the armies to attack Israel? Why are they... Why are they what is it that, that the Antichrist is able to say to do to them to get them to come and attack Israel and, and, and come against God? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us the reasons why. We can speculate a few reasons and possibilities. Uh, one, it might be because of the hatred of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Um, we know that the Antichrist is going to be a Hitler-type person. He's going to try to bl blame the Jews and Israel for all the world's problems. And this might be the greatest display of anti-Semitism the world has ever seen as he entices them. Or it might be that there are natural resources in Israel that the rest of the world doesn't have. Because remember, all these judgments that have taken place have depleted all the natural resources. There's been famines. The, the waters are turned to blood. There's no food. There's no, I mean, all this stuff. But yet God seems to protect the nation of Israel, his people. And maybe this is the only place where you can find those natural resources. And so the whole world's like, well, we'll come get them from Israel. You know, that's even happening today. That's one of the reasons why so many of the countries today want to attack Israel. They want to get into Israel. How many of you guys have heard, this was in the news just recently, one of the largest, if not the largest, natural gas deposit ever found was found just off the coast of Israel, and it belongs to Israel. It's called the Leviathan Natural Gas Fine. Some of you guys heard about that? They said that it is uh, plenty of natural gas to supply the nation of Israel and many other countries. It's worth $15 billion dollars. You don't think the rest of the world would like to get their hands on that? They would. Now, what is it that the Antichrist uses to entice these armies of the world to, to come against Israel? Well, verse 13, John describes these demonic frog-like spirits that come out of the mouth of the unholy trinity. And these spirits, with their words, entice the armies to come and fight against Israel and God. He says they're like frogs... They're not frogs, but they're like frogs. And you think of a frog, a frog is foul and it's unclean. And that's how these spirits will be. They're, they're, it's the spirit of demons. But I want to point this out to you. Even though the world may not believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, there's someone who does, maybe even more than we do, and his name is Satan. Satan knows the Bible probably better than you and I. He knows the end of the story. He knows what's going to happen to him in the end. And now he's just trying to do everything he can. One last stand against God gathering these armies. And he's going to use, you know, the beast and the false prophet and these demons to entice the world. You kind of give it one last shot to overthrow and defeat God, which is what he's always wanted to do. Because he knows what's coming next. Because as soon as this last judgment takes place, you know what happens next? Jesus Christ comes back at his second coming, and he sets up his millennial reign, his kingdom for a thousand years, and Satan is trying to do everything he can to stop it. Isn't that hilarious? And it's not just funny to you. It's funny to someone else, as you'll see in just a moment. But I want you to notice what God tucks in here in the next verse as Satan is gathering all these armies of the world to try to stop Jesus Christ from coming back and setting up his kingdom. Jesus chimes in. Now, this is one of the first times in a while we've seen Jesus himself chiming in in the book of Revelation. How many of your Bibles got red, red writing there uh, in verse 15? That's, that's the words of Jesus. And notice what he says next. Uh, hey, guys, just want to let you know something. Behold, I am coming. 
Y'all like that? I'm coming. You might want to underline that, star it, highlight it. I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Jesus just reminds us right here that nobody's going to stop him from coming back. He is coming and he is returning. And I believe that in the context, Jesus is encouraging believers during the tribulation who will read this. Who, are, who the Antichrist is trying to defeat and the nations, you know, the armies are coming against Israel and trying to defeat the Jewish people. And, and, and Jesus just steps in and says, hang in there guys, I'm coming back. It's going to be okay. You're going to be all right. Notice Jesus says he's going to come back as a thief. He's not coming back as a thief. Or he's coming back, excuse me, as a thief to the unsaved world who are not ready and not watching and they're naked because they're not clothed in the righteousness of God. But to the believers during the tribulation, he's not coming back as a thief. They know he's coming. You see, thieves, they don't like call you up and say, hey, I want to let you know next Friday night I'm going to break into your house. You, you don't know that. It's unexpected. And the world is not expecting the return of Christ at this point. But those who know Jesus Christ at this point and put their faith in him and read the Bible, and, I mean, they're gonna, be, they're gonna be able to follow Revelation as a play-by-play -play of everything that's about to happen next and say, this is coming, there it goes. This is happening, there it goes. And then Jesus chimes in and says, hey, you believers down there, check it out, I'm coming. Be ready. You are clothed in righteousness. Be ready. And this would be great encouragement. Do you see that? This would be great encouragement to those believers who have rejected the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and are doing everything to stay alive. And, and Jesus is like, just hang in there. I'm on my way back. But notice verse 16. It says, and they gathered. This is the armies. They gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. How many of y'all have heard that word before? Armageddon. Let me tell you a little bit about Armageddon, this place. We can put the picture up here. This is on top of Mount Carmel. Um, this is the very place that our group from our church stood uh, a year and a half ago, and we took many pictures. We actually didn't take this one, but we took pictures just like this. And we, we were looking out into the valley of Megiddo right here. You can see this great valley. You've got mountains up here, but there's this incredible valley right here. This is the valley of Megiddo, or what we know as Armageddon. It's also described in the Bible as the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Megiddo. It's all the same place. It's 20 miles long and 14 miles wide. There have been many major biblical battles here that you may remember. Uh, Gideon took 300 men and he defeated the Midianites in the Valley of Megiddo. Samson fought the Philistines in this valley. Josiah, the king of Israel, was killed by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt in this valley. But there's one more great battle to come, or it will appear to be a battle. What we know as the Battle of Armageddon. If you've ever heard that, say yes. That's, that's where we're at here, the battle of Armageddon. But it's interesting that the scripture never uses the phrase battle of Armageddon. It says they're gathering themselves together for what they think is going to be a battle. And it is going to be in a place called Armageddon. But as you're going to see in a minute, it's not much of a battle. Napoleon, 200 years ago, rode through this very valley we're looking at. And he said this, this is the most natural battlefield on earth. If there is a place on earth where the last war must be fought, it is here. General Douglas MacArthur, in 1945, after signing a peace treaty with Japan, ending the Second World War, said this, We have had our last chance. If we will not devise something greater and more equitable than war, Armageddon will be at our door. The Third World War. And I remember how I felt 
standing where we just saw that picture on top of Mount Carmel looking into the valley of Megiddo and thinking about all of the descriptions and revelation that this is the place. I mean, you could just see this valley and just visualize this army trying to assemble under the leadership of the Antichrist to try to defeat God. This is the same valley that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Revelation 14, 20, where John said that the defeat there and what happens is so massive that the blood will be as high as a horse, horse's bridle, which is four feet high, and it'll flow 184 miles down the, to the south to Edom. See, this really won't be a battle. It's going to be a slaughter as Jesus returns to defeat these armies that are trying to come against him. We'll see the details of that when we get back in our study in Revelation chapter 19. And I want you to make sure you don't get confused here. The sixth bowl judgment is not the battle. The judgment sets the stage for what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 19. And God is just setting everything in order and setting the stage for what is to come. It's a setup. You see, this is really the beginning of the end for these enemies and armies that want to try to fight against God. And we already laughed about that. I mean, how big of an army do you need to have to defeat God? How big of an army do you need to have? I mean, what kind of weapons do they need to have to defeat God? Well, listen to what God thinks about this. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? That's what this is. It's a vain empty, ridiculous plan. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Let us, they're saying, let us defeat God. Let us defeat Jesus. Let's stop his, his reign and kingdom from coming. And I love this, verse four. He who sits in the heavens shall what, church? <laughs> Did you know that God laughs? And he laughs when these people who followed the Antichrist and bought into his lies and take the mark of the beast try to gather the armies of the world to defeat him, he laughs like we should laugh. And the Lord, it says, shall hold them in derision. I looked up that word derision. It means ridicule or mockery. I mean, God's just gonna laugh at them and ridicule them. And like, are you, are you serious? Really? And to help us understand this, it's the, it's, the, it's the valley of Megiddo. In the Hebrew, it's Armageddon. The place is called Armageddon. In the Greek, it's Har Megiddo. Two words. Har, meaning hill. Megiddo, meaning place of the troops or place of slaughter. That's what the word means. Place of slaughter. You see, church, when we understand what God is telling us here, this really isn't the battle of Armageddon. It's the slaughter of Armageddon. As God will defeat the enemies that have blasphemed him one too many times. We close with the seventh bold judgment, letter G. The great earthquake takes place, verse 17 and 18. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven and from the throne saying, it is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. It's interesting that we've seen these bold judgments poured out, you know, upon the earth. We've seen them poured out upon the waters. We've seen them poured out upon the, the sun. But now this last one, the final one, is poured out into, what does it say in verse 17? Into the air. Well, that kind of may seem like a waste. Why is the final angel just throwing this bowl of judgment into the air? 
But I think Paul gave us a little insight and clue to what was going on here because in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that Satan is known as the prince of the power of the air. And it's, it appears that this last bold judgment is thrown right into the face of Satan as if God is saying, you lose, sucker. He might not say the sucker part, but I added that. But it's like, he's just like in the face of Satan. He throws it right into the air and he says, you got all these armies, you're gonna try to defeat me. Are you kidding me? And he just throws the last judgment right into his face as if to say, you lose, I win. Verse 17 validates this because God says in verse 17, it is done. It is done. This loud voice is God himself. And I couldn't help but think back again to Calvary, the cross, 2,000 years ago when Jesus was paying for our sins. And the last words he said were, it is finished. It's paid for. It's complete. There's a difference, though, between it is finished and it is done. You see, here's the deal. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross 2,000 years ago, and he said it is finished, and it opened a door for us to have eternal life and access to God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. But thank God, there is a door, and that door is Jesus. And he finished our sin debt on the cross 2,000 years ago, and for 2,000 years, that door remains open, and the good news is, it's still open today, if you'll choose to walk through it. But one day, when the final judgment and the seventh bowl is is poured out, boom, it's done. There's no more opportunity. There's no more salvation. The decisions have been made and God's final judgment will take place. Make a decision today. Walk through that door today that is opened. Don't wait to hear it is done. In verse 18, we see described the fourth earthquake that we've seen in the book of Revelation during the tribulation. But this is the worst one of all, and it's the worst one this earth has ever seen or ever will see. And it's not localized. It's not just in Japan or Indonesia or California. I mean, this thing is global. It's a massive global earthquake. We have a lot of people that moved to Colorado and a lot of people in our church that used to live in California. Maybe some of them are trying to get here because they want to escape the earthquakes in California. And you know, Californians always talk about the big one. The big one's coming. Well, you know what, church? There is a big one coming. But it's not just going to affect California. It's going to be the whole world at this last judgment. We read about the devastation of this big one. Verse 19 and 20. Now the great city, that's Jerusalem, was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. All the rest of them. And great Babylon, that's the Antichrist empire, it falls. It was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away. We know now that when those earthquakes happen in the ocean, they cause great tsunamis. That, I mean, this is a worldwide earthquake that's going to cause a tsunami that's going to cover all the islands of the world. But it's worse than that. And the mountains were not found. You know, we sang that song in our worship, He Who, he who Moves the Mountains... He really does. I mean, we love Colorado. We love the mountains. But one day, the same God that spoke those mountains into order will speak them out of order. You know, if he, if he with the word can put them up, he can take them down. And that's what's happening right here in Revelation by the word of God and this judgment that it's going to change the topography of the entire world. 
basically what you see happening here, God does a renovation project on the whole earth. Why is he doing that? To prepare for the return of the king and his millennial reign. And he wants it to look differently than it's looked for the last 6,000 years or so. And that's the Babel, I know. But in chapter 20, it, it, it almost seems, and, and there's some Old Testament scriptures that lead us to believe this too. We don't know for sure, but it appears that the earth is going to be moved back to a Garden of Eden type state like it was before man fell into sin. And so God just does this huge renovation project. You know, it's kind of like, you know, in, in big cities and like Las Vegas, you know, they've got these old casinos and they'll implode them and tear them down to build a new one, a bigger one, and a better one. Well, that's what God's going to do. It's going to affect the whole earth. In verse 19, it's going to specifically, one of the things he tells us, gives us what's going to happen in the great city of Jerusalem. It's going to be divided into three parts. Don't understand what all that's about, but that's what it says is going to happen. It's going to be reconfigured. It's interesting, Zechariah 14.4 gives us some insight because that prophet tells us when Jesus Christ returns, not at the rapture, but at the second coming, at the end of the tribulation, he's going to set foot first on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And Zechariah 14.4 says that the, he's going to step foot and the mountain is going to split in two. Half is going to be on one side and half is going to be on the other side. And it's like he's going to be on top and that's where he's going to rule and he's going to reign from. And, and, and many believe that this is all going to happen at the same time with this great earthquake and this reconfiguration of the earth. You know, we, as I told you before, we took a group from our church to Israel um, a year and a half ago. And, and my wife and I went. It was an incredible uh, tour of Israel and we're hoping to do another one hopefully you guys can go and it was just amazing I mean I used to read my Bible in black and white now I read it in full color I mean I see these places and I really encourage you next time that we go to try to go with us but I've had sometimes people say to me well you know what if I can't go on one of the tours that the church takes it's okay because I know the scriptures and at the second coming all the believers get to come back on white horses and we're going to be in Jerusalem with Jesus and that is true amen and so I've had people say, you know, I'll just wait for then and I'll take that tour with Jesus. It'll be better anyway. But let me remind you, it's going to look a whole lot different then. It's going to be completely different. So you might want to sign up for both tours. Take the tour with the orchard and see what it looks like now, today. Stand on the Mount of Olives like we got to, but then also take the best tour, which is the one with Jesus when he comes back. But I just want to throw that out there. I'm trying to recruit for the next tour. But, um, but it's true. Here's the key point that John's wanting us to know here as we kind of wrap this up. Babylon is going to fall. That's Satan's entire system, the Antichrist. As we pick this back up, when we come back in a few weeks to chapter 17, John is going to give us the details of each of the three things that fall. Chapter 17, we see the religious empire of the Antichrist fall. Chapter 18, we see the economic and political empire of the Antichrist fall. And chapter 19, we see the military, this army that's come against him, is defeated there in uh, Armageddon, and we'll see all that in great detail. Verse 21, we close with this. If all these other judgments weren't bad enough, here's how it closes. And the great and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. We see this last thing that happens here is hailstones begin to fall from heaven and they're the weight or size of a talent. And you say, well, okay, what's a talent? Is that like a little coin or something? Biblical measurements of a talent, a talent of silver or gold weighed 100 pounds. Y'all, that's going to leave a mark. And not to be funny, 
But those who've taken the mark are going to get a mark. A hundred pound hailstones. I mean, that's huge. But why, why is God going to do that? I mean, why did he choose that? Well, there's a reason. Because God's judgments are righteous and true, and they're always in line with his word. And we've seen three times here, as these judgments are taking place, people are not repenting. They're not bowing down to God. They're not worshiping God. They're not crying out for mercy and grace. But what are they doing? They're blaspheming God. They're blaspheming God. They're blaspheming God. We've seen it three times, haven't we? Say yes. That's what they keep doing. Blaspheme is, it means this, to speak with impious irreverence concerning God. They've done this three times, and now we see this close with God sending 100-pound hailstones on them, and he stones them. You know what the Old Testament law in Leviticus chapter 24 verse 15 says? That if anyone blasphemes the name of God, they're to be taken outside of the city and stoned to death. And that's exactly what we see in this judgment, that God takes care of him himself. But let me close with the good news. Go back to verse 16, or verse 15 of chapter 16. Jesus' words. Behold, I am coming. I mean, if that's the one thing we don't want to miss in the book of Revelation, is this is about Jesus is coming back. Do you believe that? He is coming. We don't know for sure when. It's probably not going to be May 21st, like the billboards say. But it's coming. We, it is coming. And maybe that'll get some people's attention enough to at least know that it's going to happen. He says, Behold, I am coming, and blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, and he's clothed in righteousness. He's not naked. Just as Jesus wrote those words to encourage those during the tribulation that will be waiting and watching, he's saying, Be patient, hang in there. Those words are just as true for all of us today. Hang in there. Be watching. Be ready. Be patient. It's nearer than it's ever been before. We don't know when, but it's near. And I know we're living in a time in our world and in, in, in the United States <coughs> where things are crazy. I mean, they're just crazy. I mean, it's like I, I'm afraid to turn on the TV and watch the news because it doesn't get better. It gets worse. I mean, economically, health, people are, I mean, losing their houses. People are losing their jobs. Nobody can afford to buy gas. I mean, we're all going to be walking and riding bikes. We're going to be healthy. I mean, it's just crazy. And you know what Jesus, I believe, is saying to us today? Hang in there. Hang in there. I'm coming. Be patient. And you know what, guys? I don't know what you're going through. I, I, I'm sure some of you are going through things I could never even imagine. But we have a God that cares. And he's saying, hang in there. I'm sending my son. He's coming. And you know what? No matter what we're experiencing or what we're going through, a moment after the rapture, it's all good. It's all good, man, for those who know Christ. Again, let me remind you, none of us that know Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, have to be afraid of any of these judgments because our judgment was paid for on the cross. And that's what we're coming to celebrate next Sunday. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said about the rapture. That's what we're waiting for as a church. The, we're waiting for the rapture. 
that can happen at any moment. And here's what Paul said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet them in clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And you know, this is the week that we are looking forward to Easter next Sunday. This is the Passion of the Christ Week, and, and we remember his sacrifice as we come and we celebrate communion. You don't want to miss it tonight. We remember that he took the wrath of God and judgment in his body and shed his blood for us. He said, it is finished, so we don't have to hear it is done. And we come next Sunday, it's not going to be Revelation it's not going to be doom and gloom and judgments. It's going to be celebrating our risen Lord and Savior and that he rose from the dead to defeat Satan and his armies. The victory is already won. And that's what we come next Sunday to celebrate. So it, it, I told the first service, and I wonder if I should have said it or not. And I'm like, I am going to say it. Next Sunday, we're going to rock the house for Jesus, man. And we're going to celebrate the victory we have in him because he rose from the grave. Would you bow your heads this morning with me with heads bowed and eyes closed real quickly?